I told you guys that um, that Melissa, she, um, we were in the hospital a couple of days this past week, and uh, she was going into what's called preterm labor, which isn't necessarily anything terribly unusual. It happens all the time, but it's never happened to us. So um, we we do home births. In other words, we have a midwife who delivers our babies at home. And so uh, we have a midwife that we're working with now. <coughs> and um, and so when things like this come up that are a little out of the ordinary, a little unusual, um, you know, it's something that you really need to go to the hospital to see what's going on. But most most of the doctors, they don't want to do the whole midwife thing, deliver your baby at home thing. They want you to be in the hospital where they can cut you open and do all the stuff that they do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, and so uh, our midwife, her name's Thalia, and she, she was like, gosh, um, I hate to do this, but I just don't think there's a doctor in, in Tyler that will look at, um, look at you and spend time with you um, because you've gone through all of your prenatal stuff with the midwife. And you guys kind of know the language I'm talking about? And so all you nurse students are like, oh, yeah, well, see, what happens is, it's like, I know what happens. Trust me. From the beginning to the end, I know what happened. But uh, anyway, um, so she said, well, I have a really good doctor friend. We were like, oh, good, in Sulphur Springs. And we were like, Sulphur Springs. So we had to drive an hour to Sulphur Springs and, um, and to have this nurse practitioner lady look at Melissa. And, um, and so long story short, the lady says, well, everything looks fine as far as the, you know, exam just right there in the room. We'll send you over and we'll monitor you for, you know, maybe a half hour. And, uh, and then if we feel like we need to do a sonogram, we'll do a sonogram. We're like, okay. I kind of want to n- make sure it's, it's definitely a little girl anyway. You know, you got three boys, and so you just got to make sure. So, so we get over there, and you guys, this is where it kind of starts getting really unusual. Uh, for us, maybe not for, for most people, but we walk in, and uh, we're, we're sitting there on the couch. And it's a room. It's a legitimate hospital room. And we're kind of like, this is already weird because we're never in the hospital. So... Anyway, this nurse just kind of charges on in there. Hey, if you can just take all your clothes off and put this on. And I was like, and she was kind of looking in my direction, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm assuming she means Melissa, but Melissa was even like, okay. So Melissa's like, and she puts this thing on, and she lays up on the bed. She's like, hello, <laughs> you know. And so the nurse comes in there, and um, I still to this, I do not know why they had her do that because it wasn't necessary. But... Anyway, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was a good time, you know. But anyway, um, so so we're sitting there, and they come in here, and they, they start hooking her up to all these machines and all this stuff, and they give her an IV, and they just are like, we got to do this. And we're just like, whoa, 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 stop. And before we know it, she looks like Darth Vader laid out on the, you know, on the bed, you know. And uh, Melissa and I are both just kind of looking at each other going, what is going on? And then, and what they did is they gave her this, what, what they found out was happening, they monitored her, and they found out that um, basically she was just having contractions. And contractions, when you start having contractions, there's contractions and there's what's called Braxton Hicks contractions. Those aren't that big a deal. The contractions are because they'll throw you into to labor. And she's like, well, the doctor's like, we got to stop those. So they gave her this medicine that stops those, and they did. And, of course, it gives you the shake. So Melissa's sitting there in the hospital bed going, <laughs> you know, like, this is just crazy. Because we've had all our babies at home. It's just me and Melissa and the midwife and a couple other people. We're like, you know, we're like, oh, it's just so peaceful. And this is like Darth Vader and all. So it was just, it was crazy. 
And then, so they, around, I don't know, nine, I guess, they let us go, and we got home about 10, 10.30. And, um, well, they gave us a prescription for a medicine, but we weren't even thinking, okay, um, we've got to go fill that, and there's no pharmacies open in Linda. We weren't even thinking about it. We were just so tired, got home. Well, she starts having some pretty major contractions again, I don't know, four or five maybe hours or so later, uh, or at some point, I forget the timing of it. I'm still like, whatever. And so we had to drive all the way back to Sulphur Springs, and we're just laughing. We're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, we, we get there, and they hook her back up, IV, Darth Vader, the whole works again, and we're just like laughing because it's just, we've never had to do anything. And so she wasn't in any pain. It wasn't anything like that. She just had some little contractions, and she's like, wow. So sorry I said anything, you know. But uh, so it was, it was pretty cool. We, um, we finally got home at about, um, I think, 5 or 6. This happened on, started on Thursday. We got home at about 5 or 6 on Friday. And, of course, this is Marvin's weekend to get married, and she's doing the flowers, and we're involved. And we're like, oh, my God. So it was great. Um, we were so tired, so out of it. On Saturday morning, um, I woke up, and uh, we're getting ready for the rehearsal rehearsal. So I'm, you know, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm putting the stuff in my hair and I was like, it was shaving cream. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're kidding me. I was like, so I was already fully dressed. I'm like, I'm not taking my clothes off. So I just stuck my head in the shower like that. Had water all over me. It was just, and that's just the mild ones and the ones that you can actually tell out loud. You know, there's some other funny ones. So anyway, yeah. Oh, and then, um, you know, we're doing the wedding today. I'm actually officiating it. So um, we had someone that was going to come and speak today so that I wouldn't have to speak this morning. You guys could enjoy the ministry of someone else in the, in the city. And um, he, at the last minute, like I think it was on Friday or Saturday, he called. He goes, uh, hey, man, I'm in a wedding on Sunday, too, and I forgot. Well, what does that, what does that mean? I can't speak. I was like, oh, okay. So anyway, so here we are. We're going to get in the Word. And God knows what's going on, and babies are wonderful. So, let's get our Bibles out, turn to Acts chapter 9. I tell you what, let's just read through and uh, stop where we stop. You want to do that? It says, For several days he would begin speaking out in the name of Jesus. He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed. They said, Is this not the one who was killing everybody? Um, In verse 22 it says, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus. If you were here last week, you can read this verse, verse 22, and be like, this is kind of funny if you think about it. Remember we talked about how, um, last week we talked about Saul's conversion, how he was radically changed, how he hated Christians. He was going to Damascus. He literally asked for letters from the high priest so that he could go to the synagogues in Damascus and see if there were anybody following the way, if there were any Christians, that he might bring them back bound. And, um, and we talked about why, why would he do that? You know, it's a, it's a big trip to take. We talked about how Damascus is like 130 miles away from Jerusalem. So this would have been like a six-day journey for him. But remember we said that he knew the, uh, the type of town Damascus was. Damascus was a, a, a really big hub for commercial um, stuff, a big commercial network, and their influence, the influence of Damascus stretched to uh, Mesopotamia, 
to uh, Arabia, to all these places. I mean, just huge, huge, huge influence that just Damascus had, just what came out of there. And so for Saul, he strategically thought, if I can end this thing in Damascus, then we will stop this thing. It will be done. And then God stops him in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And we, last week we saw that. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We know that he, he um, this his conversion. Paul says, okay, I'm, I'm going with God. You truly are Jesus, and I was wrong. Sorry. And he's going on a new path. And then we hear him immediately begin saying, he is the Son of God. He is. And in verse 22, it says that, um, um, that Saul kept increasing in strength, confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So it's almost like Paul had a plan or Saul had a plan to go and uh, strategically stop this thing in, in Damascus. But Jesus, being slightly ahead of him, said, you know what, I think I'll just send Saul there myself and use that commercial network to spread it. You know what I mean? God was kind of ahead of it. And so I think it's funny. I read that, and I'm like, wow. God was way ahead of Saul this whole time. And here he is making the biggest influence, probably a bigger influence as a born-again Christian than he could as a Judaizer. You know what I mean? And so it's very, very, very cool for me to read that and see that. Hopefully you, you feel the same thing. Um, look down in verse 26. Well, verse 25 says, His disciples took him by night because they were trying to get him. This is going to be under some persecution. It says, But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. It says, When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid. One of the things I uh, was kind of reading about is that when he came to, back to Jerusalem, I guess I knew this now that I think about it and, and realize it, but we read it like he came out of the basket and then went to Jerusalem. But actually, it took him three years to get back to Jerusalem. There was a big time spread. He actually went to Arabia. He, he um, did a lot of ministry. He was doing all kinds of things, and it took him three years. So this time span, uh, span that we see between verse 25 and uh, verse 26 is like three years. So he had been gone for a long time. And it says that when he did come back to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. I think that means all of the all the people that were Christians there. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Not believing that he was a disciple. In other words, not believing that he was a sincere Christian. Remember, Jesus even talked about a lot of people are going to claim to be this, claim to be that, but with ulterior motives to bring the church down, to do all kinds of things, to uh, stir havoc. And remember a few chapters ago, we talked about um, uh, Simon the sorcerer. Remember, he believed, but then he was still kind of freaky and into his sorcery kind of stuff. And Peter rebuked him and said, you better get on your knees and ask God to forgive you because you are messed up. And so there were a lot of people like that. We talked about how Simon went on to, to stir up some of the, the biggest um, um, falsehoods in the church that still are around today. That Simon Sorcerer was a wicked dude. So when Saul comes back, hey, I love Jesus. The people are like, whoa. We've seen people like you. What's up? They really had a hard time believing that his salvation, his experience was real. He had been gone three years. They may have heard about, oh, something happened to, to Paul on the way to Damascus. We heard this, we heard that, but it had been three years. A lot could change in three years, couldn't it? Somebody could have been like, oh, I was just kidding. I, I, I don't really love Jesus, and they'd be back on track killing the Jews. And so they were very, very concerned. Um, so look what it says <coughs> down in... 
verse 31. Well, I'll just read on down there because it's, it's good for us to hear. It says, but Barnabas, we know later those guys are chums. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how Damascus, at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus, trying to convince the apostles and all the disciples. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was, taking on, uh, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. And so he's you know, already in Jerusalem, even starting to come under some persecution. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And then verse 31 is where I really want us to land and focus on a little bit today. Saul's conversion is a huge event uh, for us as Christians. A lot, part of the reason why we are able to do what we're doing here, that we are even believers in Messiah, is because of the work that Saul of Tarsus did, because of that conversion here in chapter 9. We talked about that a lot last week. It's a, it's a big, big deal. We see him ministering here um, in Damascus, and we see him coming back to Jerusalem, and there's like this momentum picking up. He's getting stronger and stronger. It says that his strength continued. He began to increase in strength, confounding the Jews. So his ministry was, um, he was doing a lot of things. And we can look at Saul and say, wow, Saul was really, Saul is amazing. Saul is really doing great stuff. I mean, if Saul hadn't have, hadn't just believed and all that stuff, we have to back up and we have to look at our, our Lord who, who wooed him, drawed him, confronted him for where he was and led him to himself and transformed him, radically transformed him. Saul's a great guy, but he is nothing without Jesus Christ. Along the way, you hear Paul going uh, and saying those kinds of things. I am the least. I am the worst sinner. I'm the least of people. I'm, I'm messed up. He realizes too. And so when we get to um, verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all of Judea, Galatia, um, Galilee, I'm sorry, and Samaria enjoyed peace, building up, fear of the Lord, uh, comfort in the Holy Spirit. It says it continued to grow. You can, a part, you can partly contribute that to, to Saul, but mostly you have to say, Lord, look what you did. Look what you did through Saul. Look what you began. And I want to look at this, this verse, verse 31, and I want to point out four things that are just stick out. And I think we've probably all even heard these kinds of things now that I think about it. I don't think this is anything new. But it's a great reminder. I'm hoping that it will be a good encouragement for you today, uh, today as you leave and go out and change the world. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, which, by the way, is a huge, huge, huge area, it says that they enjoyed peace, it says, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it says, it continued to increase. And I want to look at those four things. Enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I want to look at those four things. And I will start with enjoying peace. It says that they enjoyed peace. I, I love that translation, that they enjoyed peace. Your translation may say something like, um, they had rest. Or had they rest? If you're in King James, it kind of talks like Yoda sometimes. You know, had they, you know. Some of your versions may say that rather than enjoyed peace, just that they had peace. And I think it's significant in a couple different ways that they enjoyed peace or that they had rest. They enjoyed rest. They enjoyed peace. Um, one reason is, is like a physical peace that I think that they, I mean, you can tell even historically, there was a physical rest there was a physical, like I'm not having to worry as much right now. And then there's also a spiritual rest that I want to talk about. But looking at this physical rest, one of the things that was going on right about the time of Acts 
9, verse 31, in the season of when Paul was going all this stuff, there was a historical crossroads happening um, uh, in the the temple or in the the Jewish faith. And there was something going on overall in the Roman Empire. Right Right around 37 AD, one of the things that was happening is Caiaphas. You guys remember Caiaphas? You hear his name all the time, especially during Jesus's crucifixion. He was the high priest. But right here, right around this time, 37 AD, Caiaphas, um, the high priesthood changed. And so it went from Caiaphas to this guy named Jonathan, and then it went on to this guy named Theophilus. So that's one big thing. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe um, Theophilus wasn't as big of a um, pursue, um, pursuer of Christians. You know, maybe he didn't hate what was going on as much as Caiaphas or whatever. So that's one thing that it could have brought a little bit of reprieve for uh, the Christians. But another huge thing that happened right about the same time is that there was a changeover in the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor at the time was Tiberius, but the guy named uh, Caligula succeeded him, and he became the emperor. And one thing you have to know about Caligula is that he was bitterly hostile towards Jews. He hated Jews. It's just interesting. You know, um, the Tiberius was willing to kind of, uh, he probably didn't like them very much either, but he was willing to work with them. And if you know the story of how sometimes the Romans and the, and the Jews, the high priests and stuff, will kind of work together on some things. But um, Caligula, he hated them. And so there was a lot of persecution that started happening on the Jews. And what happened um, four years later, Caligula was, was assassinated. But there was a season where there was a lot of persecution towards the Jews. You guys hear what I'm saying? You understand? And so during that time, it's like they were distracted from the Christians. So right here when it says that they enjoyed peace, part of it was because of what was culturally going on at the time. Change of the high priest, change of the Roman emperor, more of a, a focus on um, persecuting and, and you know getting out towards the Jews rather than the Christians. And so... I don't know exactly how long. I don't know if we can say for sure how long that peaceful season lasted. But we know that the guy who hated the Jews and was distracted from Christians, he was assassinated four years later. So maybe they enjoyed like a four years of peace. You know, maybe. I mean, it's, it's assumption, but maybe. So maybe they had about four years of peace. That's one of the things that go, is going on. Like physically, I think when he says that they enjoyed peace, I think literally there was not as much persecution going on. There wasn't as much going on against the Christians. And that's a very nice thing. But I think also, spiritually, I think that they were enjoying uh, a level of peace. I mean, think of what had just happened. Again, not to, not to beat the conversion of Saul into the ground, but that was a huge thing for the Christians. Not only did a level of persecution or a huge level of persecution towards the Christians stop. Why? Because the, the one that was heading it up for the most part, he got saved. He encountered Jesus. He got radically transformed. Though there was still persecution and still things going on, um, even, even Saul himself was being persecuted, you know, for his preaching in Damascus and in Jerusalem. So there's still stuff going on. But when stuff is going on and you see God work so powerfully in someone's life, you see what God can do in a person. There is some sort of a confidence. There is some sort of a peace that lands on your heart to see that God was able to confront Saul, change him for what he was, which is a, a Christian killer to a Jesus lover. I mean, that's got to bring some sort of resolve to your soul. Like, my goodness, if Jesus can do that to Saul, 
He can do anything. And so there's a level of peace, I think, spiritually, like, I can rest. I can relax knowing that no matter, no matter how bad it gets, as far as persecution, I can relax because look what God has just done. Look what he just did to Saul of Tarsus. If he can, if he can keep that man at bay or, or change that man, he can do anything. And so there's a level of spiritual rest, and I think we can be encouraged by that because there's all kinds of miracles that can happen all throughout the world that can we look at and hear about and read on the Internet or TV or through a preacher that comes into town and be like, man, God did that? You got, how many of you were here when Pastor Don spoke and he talked about that miracle, the girl that had a, um, it grew back, was it a kidney or a liver? No, it was a kidney. Cause, you know, yeah, so it was a kidney. I mean, you hear stuff like that and you're like, man. So, you know, Melissa and I sitting in the hospital bed like, we're having contractions, early delivery and all this stuff. It's like, wait a minute. God grew a kidney not too long ago. If he can do that, he can, he can fix a couple of contractions. There's a peace that can come over you seeing whether it's a large miracle like that, but, but even, even a small miracle, something as small as, man, my cousin got saved last week. Man, if you'd known my cousin, you'd know that's a big deal. Those little things, is, whether it's a little thing or even a big miracle, those are enough, those are en- enough in our life that should be able to sustain and promote, rather, I guess, like peace. Don't you guys agree? Unless we're overlooking them, and we don't, we don't really see that as a miracle. When, uh, a miracle is when an arm grows back, you know? No, it's a miracle to me anymore when someone says yes to follow Jesus Christ. That's a miracle in the day we live in, don't you think? That's an absolute miracle. When someone says, hey, do you know so-and-so got saved? Like, uh, I have some friends staying with us, and Back in junior high, I was kind of like a skater, you know? Rode half pipes and had a cool mullet and earrings and could do cool tricks and stuff. And so a couple of people that I followed um, was Tony Hawk. You guys all heard of Tony Hawk. Um, Lance Mountain, and there's a guy named Christian Hasoy. And my buddy Ben said, did you know that Christian Hasoy got saved? I was like, what? Yeah, he's on staff at a church now. And I'm like, Whatever. How many of you know who Christian Hasoy is? Right on. Sweet. We'll talk. But when you hear about stuff like that, like, really? Wow. You hear about these rockers and these people that used to do devilish stuff, now serving God with all of their heart. And the zeal, just like Saul, the zeal that he had for killing Christians, now he has for promoting the new covenant and promoting the love of Christ. Amen? What do you... His zeal he used to have for the old covenant and the law of Moses he now has for the new covenant and the law of love. And it's like, wow. And so you hear that. Someone gets saved and he's like, you have to look at that and say, you know what? There's a level of peace that can overwhelm my heart right now. Because if he can do that, if he's still saving people. I love it when he's growing arms back. I love it whenever he's growing kidneys back. And I will always long to see something like that happen in person. But I get just as stoked about someone that comes to the realization of their need for Jesus Christ and calls on his name and is transformed just like Saul. Amen? Amen. So when they enjoyed peace, I think they enjoyed it physically. I think they enjoyed it spiritually because what was going on. Um, The next thing it says is they were being built up. Now let me say this because this is important. We don't get this. We don't understand this. When there are times of peace in our life, whether it's literal physical peace, rest, whatever's going on, or there is... Um, spiritual peace, maybe we feel like we're on top of the world and we're just like, ah, Jesus, and we're just like, ah. One of the things that we have to do is take advantage of that season. 
And that's what you see him doing, these guys doing here. It says that they, they enjoyed peace. And then look what it says, being built up. Some of your versions say something like being um, edified. Some of your versions say that they were strengthened. And so whatever that season was, maybe it was that four-year span that, uh, that Caligulus was, was in office where they're diverted to the Jews over here. They took that time and they built themselves up. They studied the word, they prayed, they, they um, ministered, they did whatever it took to build them up in the most holy faith. Uh, faith. And it makes me think about how us, when times of rest or times of peace or times of chillaxing come, how we just kind of sit back, we party, we do whatever, and we just absolutely waste time. There's some great testimonies of people who understood that in peacetime, you need to still plow forward and build yourself up in the faith. There's a guy in the Old Testament. Um, you see him in First Kings, and you also see him in Chronicles. His name is Asa. He was a king. His, his dad and his grandma were actually morons. When it introduces them, it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But when King Asa took over, it says King Asa did what was right and good in the sight of the Lord. And what Asa's dad and his grandma, his dad's mom, did is they brought in foreign gods. They brought in foreign gods. They set up the Asherah poles, which was, you know, Asherah was like a Phoenician goddess. And she was like basically the goddess of increase, a fertility goddess, which basically means she was a sex god. And so she had, I won't even describe her, but she was built. You know what I mean? And so they would worship her. And this is what the king and his mom brought in. They weren't focusing on. They were focusing on this. And one of the first things that, that Asa did when he became king is he, he says that he went and he tore down the high places and he destroyed the Asherah poles. And he was so serious about bringing righteousness back to the kingdom of God, back to God's people, that he literally went to grandma and said, Grandma, you gots to go. And he dethroned his own, the first lady. I mean, he kicked his grandma out of office. The guy's serious about this stuff. And it says because of that, he, he, he told the people, we will now be serving God, so just get the memo and let's be doing it. Uh, grandma's gone. Dad's literally gone, dead. I'm king now. We will be focusing on God again. High places are gone. Uh, the Asherah poles, they're gone. We're not doing that anymore, so you better get on board unless we'll take care of it one way or the other. He was very serious. He brought righteousness and a focus back on God to the nation. And what you see if you read that account is that God literally gave them 10 years of peace. 10 years. Now, before that, they were at war with everybody. Everybody was attacking. If you know much about you know, the history and the wars and everybody's attacking, you know, God's people. And they were, but for 10 years, because of what Asa did, that peace, 10 years of peace. But here's what I love. Asa didn't go, sweet, break out the pina coladas. Sweet, go get me some white bread and bologna, whatever. It's not what he did. It says that he went and he fortified what did he say? He built up the fortified cities. During that time of peace, this is literally the wording, he built up the fortified cities. And if you look at that phrase, I remember reading that the first time and going, he built up the fortified. Well, what's a fortified city? A fortified city is a city that's already strong, right? I mean, these guys were at war all the time. 
So it's not like their city wasn't fortified. They had some sort of wall, some sort of stuff, right? He says he built up the fortified city. In other words, he took the time to make stronger that which is already strong. Instead of relaxing and resting and sipping on pina coladas on the beach. I don't guess there's really a beach out there, is there? You know, maybe there is. There's a couple, I suppose. He says, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to take the time, who, however long this peace will last. It's not like God said, hey, I'm going to give you 10 years of peace. He didn't know that, you know. He said, I don't know how, long, how much peace we have. We better build up the fortified seas. Let's make stronger that which is already strong in our influence. And he took the time, and it says that they, he equipped thousands of foot soldiers and thousands of archers and this, that, and the other. And he just went after it. And here's the thing. I don't know if it was to the day, but part of me thinks it was to the day. It says that the um, Ethiopians came against Asa. And it says that Asa went out to meet the Ethiopians in the valley of whatever. And it says that the Ethiopians, the Cushites is what they called them then, the Cushites came and had a vast army. And when you describe an army as vast, you're basically saying you have over a million people in your army. It's just, that's just what that means in that language, a vast army. And um, if you look at it, Asa only had about 580,000 people that were going to get after it. So 580 or so thousand against a million or more, and that's not including the chariots. They had like 300 chariots, which would have been the equivalent of a tank for us. So a million soldiers and 300 tanks against 580 you know, people with spears and bow and arrows. This was helpless. Helpless. But Asa says, well, first of all, Asa hadn't been relaxing. He was prepared somewhat. He'd been training. And even though they were outnumbered, at the end of the day, not only had he had been training, his focus was still the same. There's no one like our God to bring about a great victory. That's kind of what he says. There's no one like our God to bring about a great victory. And here's the thing that should encourage us most today is that because of the work that he did, the attitude that he had, willing to edify himself, strengthen himself, build himself up during the time of peace, when it came time to fight, a fight that was not even close, not only did he win, but it says that God smashed those people, and it says to where they could not even recover. God took care of the army to where it could not even recover. The Cushite... They, they never attacked them again. Why? Because the army couldn't recover. And I think that's what God wants to do in our life. We got these giants. We got these vast armies. We got these issues. And God wants to do something in our life. He wants to make it so it, it, it can't even recover. He wants to defeat it. He wants it to be um, so defeated in our life that it doesn't even, it's not even able to recover. Think about some of the reoccurring struggles and sins that you have in your life. And you're like, oh, man, why can't I get over this thing? Why can't I get over this thing? Well, are you sipping pina coladas? Are you building yourself up in the most holy faith? What are we doing? Because there is always going to be something that comes after um, a time of peace. Oh, it's peacetime. Oh, that may not last forever. You can't guarantee that. So build yourself up. And when that time does come where opposition or persecution or difficulty or sin or trials or struggles come, what God will do is he will come on your behalf and the effort, your effort and his effort combined, and he will take care of that, and it will be gone. You're, it is possible for certain issues and struggles and sin things in your life to be gone. No more. I've experienced that in a few areas of my life and still working on a few more. Some of you have said, man, I don't struggle with that anymore. 
It can happen. Well, no, because we'll always. No, that's not the gospel, I believe. I believe the gospel can take care of that. Maybe it's one thing at a time over the course of many years, but the Lord can deliver us from things that hold us bound. Can he or can he not, people? Right? But what are we doing? Are we sitting back, you know, big glass of orange juice and ice? Whatever. I say that like I know what I'm talking about. Umbrellas, you know? It's peace, man. Peace. Or peace, whatever. Peace. You guys hear what I'm saying? I got a little intense there. I do get intense with that because we become lazy. We are, as a whole, we are Christians that are just flat out lazy. Get a little rest and we waste it. There's a, there's a guy named J. Oswald Sander. He wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership. I love it. I read it once or twice a year. And he says, leisure is a glorious opportunity, but it's also a subtle danger. Leisure is a glorious opportunity, but it's also a subtle danger. And something I wrote down just in, in my thoughts, the saint who uses spare time to veg out will never be ready for the war that wages against the soul. Let me say it again. The saint who uses spare time to veg out, you guys know what I'm talking about. That saint will never be ready for the war that wages against the soul. And you think about some of the other things Paul said. One time he wrote to the Ephesian church and he said, you need to make the most of your time because the days are evil. And when he says make the most of that time, that phraseology that he uses there literally means to buy up the opportunities. Literally buy up, redeem the time. Don't waste it. Buy it up and use it well. Leisure is a glorious opportunity, but it's also a subtle danger. Then it goes on to say, um, um, what does it say? I'm still having contractions in my head. So I'm like, what? Um, And it says, enjoying peace, being built up. And then it just says, going on. In the fear of the Lord. In other words, they, they moved on from there. They moved on from these circumstances. They went on, and how they moved forward was a, a, in the, the fear of the Lord, which basically um, means in a, in a, um, there was a level of awe there and reverence. There was a level of um, respect for God, who He is, what He is able to com- uh, accomplish. It says they moved on, they went on from there in the fear of the Lord. And it was just a few minutes earlier, we, seeing they, we saw that they were scared to death of a man. <laughs> right? They were scared of Saul. And they were scared of Saul because they didn't know what his intentions were. But now you see them moving on. Hey, we're going to move on for this. And not in the fear of man. Not afraid of what a man could do. I mean, my goodness, look what God's done to a man for us men. I tell you what, if we're going to be afraid of anything, if we're going to res- be the respecter of or revere something or be in awe of something, it's not going to be man from now on. It's going to be the fear of the Lord. It's going to be in awe and reverence of the Lord. And they went on from there in the fear of the Lord. And it says also in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I read something uh, actually earlier this morning when I was looking up this thing, comfort of the Holy Spirit, just trying to look, Lord, is there anything more about that? And I'm just going to say this phrase and we'll end with this. It says, God wants the comfortable to be afflicted, gaining the fear of the Lord, and the, the afflicted to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. Let me say it again, because there's this nice little cycle. You know, God's working in our lives. He's active. 
because there's something that he wants to produce. And what he's wanting to produce in us is a mirror image of his son. And so he'll do whatever it takes, allow whatever it takes. And because he's sovereign, he knows, he knows us, obviously, very intricately. He knows what it takes for us as individuals. I've experienced different things in my life that are shaping me and molding me than you have. But the things that are working for me are working for me. The things that God uses in your life are working for you, hopefully, right? Let me say it again. God wants the comfortable to be afflicted so that they can gain the fear of the Lord. And the afflicted to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. You guys tracking with me? That doesn't sound very nice. But what it produces in us is very nice because it's holiness. It's righteousness. It's us being able to reflect the image of God, to be able to reflect his glory or his reputation, to follow in his footsteps, to model his characteristics, his integrity, his love, everything that we know of him. And if he has to allow something or even cause something in our life that might push us towards fearing him more than man or considering him more than this or loving him more than money or fame or whatever, you know, the vice may be for a particular person. He'll, he'll allow that to happen. And then when it comes to that point of feeling totally afflicted and like, oh, what? What is going on? Oh, God, help me. He's like, sure. I'll comfort you with the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's the way it works. I mean, that's, that's it. And it's good stuff. Let's stand. I got a wedding to get to, and you guys got lunch. Well, I guess I'll eat lunch too. Are you encouraged today? Are you? Cool. Well, listen, let's go out of here in these four things. Consider your life peaceful because beyond anything else, he has brought you peace, if nothing else, to your soul. Amen? Peace, being built up. Don't be lazy. Don't sit pina coladas. You know, you know what I mean. Uh, go on in the fear of the Lord and be comforted by the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for today. You have gathered us in your name, and we have worshiped you. We have praised you. We have ministered to you, and we know what happens when we minister to you, Lord. You, in turn, minister to us. And so we are here, and we are, we are truly being comforted and counseled by your Holy Spirit today. We thank you for your word. We pray that we would all have a heart to address even the most tender things in our life and dethrone those if we have to in order to bring righteousness into our life, in order to bring God into our life, in, other words, in order to bring you to be the main focus, Lord, to get rid of the high places that don't have your name on them, Lord. We ask that you would empower us to do that and that you would show us constantly when we're wrong and when we're in error. We pray that um, we would be built up. We pray that as we read our word, as we study, Lord, um, that you would build us up and we'd be encouraged and we'd be equipped to carry on the gospel, to teach of your name and to do what, what Saul did and just saying he is the son of God. Lord, give us that boldness. Give us that zeal. And uh, we worship you today and we're very thankful. Thank you for the people who are visiting today. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would bless Marvin and Andrea as they get married today. I pray that the things will go well. And um, yeah, we're glad to be your children. Amen.